Um, Today we will be reading from Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Second Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who fulfills your promises, that you are a God who is sovereign, you are in control. And Lord, we thank you that when we look at your word, we see countless stories where even when things were at their most hopeless, you step out and you take action and you bring about victory for you and your people. We pray as we study your word this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears to what you have to say, Um, and we pray that you would speak through me. These would be your words and not mine. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning we are continuing our series on prayer and fasting. Um, and we have been, the, the last few weeks, and we'll have a time today at the end of the service, we've been adding prayers up on that wall. Um, and the yellow prayers, in, in theory, those are all prayer requests. And then the blue ones are praises, where God has worked in these last few weeks and where God's continuing to work as we move forward. So I hope today you've got a blue one to stick up there. If not, I'd encourage you, keep praying, keep fasting, keep seeking out the Lord. Today, before we jump into our series, we do have a bit of housekeeping. Um, It's the Super Bowl today. If you're a high school student, we're going to be watching the game at 5 p.m. Bring a um, homemade dessert or store-bought or homemade savory item to share. There will be a bunch of pulled pork Um, We're also, since it's the Super Bowl, going to go big, which means I might go long. Um, So we're in the book of Esther today. Um, I just casually threw that in there. So we're in the book of Esther today, um, and the book of Esther is one of my favorite books in the Bible. A year ago with our high school students, we actually acted this whole book out on a retreat, and it's one of my favorite memories because the book of Esther is one of the most expertly crafted stories ever. And, and when you start in the book of Esther, you need to know five things or else it's going to feel like nonsense. Um, the first thing you need to know is that Esther was designed to be read in one sitting. Once a year, the, the Jewish people, going, dating back to the time when the book was read, even to now, they read the book of Esther in one sitting at the Feast of Purim. It's, it's a once-a-year thing that they do. It's, a, it's, it's important that we know this because the author wrote it with the idea of you need all of it to understand the big idea. If you read it chapter by chapter, in half the chapters, you should come away doing nothing different in your life. Seriously. The second thing you need to know is that the book of Esther is satire. 
It is not a historical report. As you read through the book of Esther, it is a comedy, it is exaggerated, it is humorous. We should be laughing as we read it, laughing in the face of a genocide. The author wants us to read this book and chuckle as we do so. The third thing you need to know is Esther is about Jews who chose to remain exiled. When Megan got up here, she read the portion of Jeremiah and then the portion of Second Chronicles where we see God promise you're going into exile for 70 years, one of many promises. And then we saw the end under King Cyrus of Persia when he invited all the Jews to return. And now we're later than that in history and we've still got a bunch of Jews in exile. And the book of Esther is focused primarily on them. We need to know that because it should paint them in a slightly negative light before we learn a thing about them because they did not return. And how do they worship God when the temple is in Jerusalem and they are far away willingly? Remember that. The next thing we need to know, and this one is amazing, the book of Esther never mentions God at all. God is not mentioned. Lord, it's, it's not even like hinted at that there's a divine power. Everything is written as if God doesn't exist. Now, as I say that, you're like, well, this is in the Bible, Matt. Um, Martin Luther, a great theologian, said we should get rid of the book of Esther, even though it was established as part of the, the Jewish Old Testament, very clearly a part of the Bible. What a lot of people struggle with in Esther is that the author invites you to decide where is God at work, and you have to think about it. Because these are a people who do not worship God very well. Remember, they're exiled Jews who have the opportunity to return to be able to worship the right way in in Jerusalem, and they choose not to. So when God is not mentioned, it's not because this book isn't about God. He is still definitively the main character, but it's to help us look and see. The author wants us to look and find where did God move in this story despite us not mentioning him. The final thing... Um, every movie made about Esther butchers her story, and so do most other resources I have seen. Um, I just have to get this out here. There's this movie called One Night with the King, and I'm just going to say this as, as politely as I can. It is awful. It is not biblical. It turns Esther into a hero in our modern eyes that the book of Esther says, no, she is not that. It focuses on her wit and her humor and her ability to be like a missionary to King Xerxes. And as we read through this story, you're going to see that that cannot be true. The book or the movie, The One Night with the King, it can be like a, that's a great Christian values movie, but because it says it's the book of Esther, I don't think it's worth watching. And many resources try and say, let's raise our girls up to be like Esther. Let's raise women like Esther. And there is a point where that is true. And then there are a whole bunch of points in the story where we should go, oh, we can do better than that. And that's not to flippantly make fun of her. That's to say the author is not trying to say women all be like Esther all the time. And we're going to see that as we go. So there's one more thing you need to know. If you have a handout, on the back of that handout, there's a triangle. The book of Esther is an ancient storytelling thing called a chiasm, which means that the beginning and end of the book look pretty similar And each step the whole way up looks pretty similar. They parallel each other. And in the center at the top is going to be the most important moment in the entire book. The entire book hinges on this moment. And so we're going to look at the book the whole way through. But our first thing, we're going to build to that top moment to see how God is going to work in the book of Esther. So now you have all the background you need for us to jump in. 
So the first thing that happens in the book of Esther, there's this King Xerxes, and he holds a feast of 180 days. If you have an ESV Bible, um, it's going to say his name is Assyrus, um, but I'm saying Xerxes because other Bibles say that. It's the same name, and the Xerxes is a lot easier to like, pronounce over and over and over. Um, we're also reading out of the NLT today. Um, got you. So... I always tell her we're using ESV, so today it's a reversal. Um, But so King Xerxes is this king who holds a feast of 180 days. He is the king of the entire Persian Empire. And the reason he is holding this feast is because right before this feast starts, if you've seen the movie 300 or heard of the Spartans who win a battle, this is that Xerxes. And he is embarrassed at the end of that battle. They suffer a massive defeat that they should not suffer. And so at the end of that, he returns, he limps home, and he says, I'm still really rich and powerful. Let's have a massive feast to remind my people how great I am. And so for 180 days, remember, satire, exaggeration, for 180 days, they feast. And at the end of 180 days of the feast, what do they do? They feast for seven more days. And King Xerxes has the entire city of Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. He makes a decree in the whole city that says, for every man in this city, from the highest noble to the lowest born, drink as much as you can. Drink as much as you want. You're required to drink. That's what he says. And it's supposed, again, over the top, comedy. And so all the people are feasting and celebrating seven days after 180 days. And in the midst of this, on the last day, King Xerxes is super drunk. He's merry with his wine. He is like, I've shown everyone everything I have. And then he thinks, oh, there's one thing I haven't shown them. And he has seven servants, seven eunuchs that are allowed to be in his presence at any time. And he turns to his seven eunuchs and he says, hey, guys, can you all go and get Queen Vashti, my wife, who's hosting a feast for all the women of the city, and bring her to me in her royal crown? And so they go and get her and they say, Vashti, we need you to return. And Vashti responds, no. Because when the king says, I want her to come before me and all my officials so they can see her beauty and her royal crown, he literally means in her royal crown and nothing else. So Vashti says no, and this starts a problem. The king goes into a rage. He's drunk, he's enraged, he's angry. And so what does he do at this point? Well, he, he issues a decree. And before we get to his decree, I want to tell you a few things about Xerxes we're going to see over and over in this story. He is a perpetual drunk. Every time he is mentioned, he is clearly mentioned with wine or some type of drink. He is also prone to rage. And finally, he is easily manipulated. He's like a figurehead for whoever has his ear. They get to do whatever they want. So the king, in his rage, After Vashti won't come to him, he talks to his wise advisors, those seven men, and he says, what must be done to Queen Vashti? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? What a husband, right? What a husband. And then his advisors, one of them, his name's Memukin. He answers the king and his nobles, and he says, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of, wives of all the nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. Oh no. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. 
Now, this is so important. When it says a law or decree that cannot be revoked, Daniel, in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, when the king finds out he has to throw the lion, or Daniel in the lion's den, Dan, uh, the king says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And his wise men say, uh-uh, it's a law. You cannot change your law. Once a law is written in Persia, for the Persians and the Medes, it cannot be changed. And we need to remember this because it will be so important as the story goes on. But so right now they're saying, you need to issue an irrevocable law. And that law should say that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. No one's laughing at that. Um, you're supposed to laugh right now. This is, this is not a life verse um, right here. Um, what's, what's happening right now is there is an over-the-topness. The Jewish author, from a Jewish perspective, is trying to mock the Persian royalty and the Persian wise men. We're supposed to see that. In, it's supposed to be just very clear. This decree is going to go out, and everyone in the empire is going to find out, wow, the king can't even get his wife to do something. By issuing a decree, it makes sure everyone knows about it. It's a ridiculous, over-the-top moment. But the king hears this, and he goes, you know what, let's do it. And so the king sends out this decree to the whole kingdom, saying, Queen Vashti isn't allowed here anymore, and I'm going to pick a new wife. And then he sobers up. Um, And after he sobers up, he realizes, oh, I kind of miss her. I don't have a wife anymore. Um, And in the middle of that, his personal attendants, I'm going to paraphrase this, essentially what they say is, you need to have a beauty pageant, appoint officers to go throughout the kingdom and find the hottest young virgins. And once you find them, bring them all here. They'll each get one night to impress you. And at the end of that night, you pick the one you want. And the king's happy with that. And so another decree goes out. And that second decree goes out, and when that decree goes out, all the, the king's men start to go around saying, ooh, she's really hot, come with me. And that, that's really, that's the idea we're supposed to come away with. And it's at this point that we're introduced to Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew who remained in exile. He lives in Susa, the capital of Persia, in the city where all of this takes place. He is Esther's adoptive father. He's actually her cousin or uncle, depending on how the word translates, but he is much older than Esther, but he is like her surrogate father. Her parents are dead. Um, and, and so Mordecai takes her as his own. Um, he also tells Esther to not reveal she is a Jew in this story. And one thing that we have to know at this point, Esther is a very traditional Jewish name in our modern ears. But when the book of Esther came out, she had a different name. Esther was her Persian or Babylonian name to kind of hide the fact that she was a Jew. Esther, her Jewish name was Hadassah, which means star. Um, Esther was beautiful in figure and very attractive. That is the primary trait she is given. She's hot. That's it. That's, that's what we're supposed to know about her. She's a hot orphan. And finally, she's obedient to Mordecai. Okay? That's, that's all we know about her when we're first introduced to her. Not her wisdom, not her godliness, not anything else. What we know is when Mordecai says, don't tell people you're a Jew, she goes, I'm fine with that. And so what happens out of this is Esther becomes the queen. And how Esther becomes the queen is important when we talk about her character because one one of the tensions in this story is that each 
virgin, uh, they have a year of beautifying for the king. Exaggeration. But, but in the text, it says that. They, for six months, they're oiled up. And then for six months, they're like massage. They have like a spa day every day so that when they appear before the, the king, they're at their most beautiful. And Esther, when it's her turn to go in before the king, before she goes in, there's this eunuch named Haggai who is in charge of the king's women. And she says to him, hey, what is he like in the bedroom? And he says, whatever. It's the Bible, so they don't go into detail on that. But essentially, he says, here's all the things he likes. So Esther goes in. The king sees Esther and goes, wow, she's hot. And then she blows him away in the bedroom. A Gentile king, she blows away in the bedroom. And out of that, she becomes queen. And as we read this, in, an, in a Jewish understanding, in, a, in the tension of the passage, we should go, okay, this is kind of great for Jews, but also she did things she probably shown enough. She's not a hero right now. Not at all. And so after this moment happens, this is a, a big moment for Mordecai and Esther, though. Now he's the father of the queen. And the very next thing that happens takes it one step further. Mordecai saves the king's life. That's, that's, uh, things, are, things are looking up for them right now. Mordecai saves the king's life. How does he do that? Well, every day when Esther was in the king's palace, Mordecai would go to the king's gate to talk to Esther. And after she became queen, one day he went to do the same thing he'd always done, and he overheard two of the king's seven wise men. And they are talking about assassinating the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther to tell the king on Mordecai's behalf about it. Esther does. And then the king investigates the matter, and finds out these guys really were going to assassinate him. And so they are killed instead. They are impaled on spikes. After they are impaled on spikes, it is recorded in the king's book of just the history, the, the chronicles of the king, that Mordecai saved the king's life. And so now you've got Queen Esther. And now let's see what happens with Mordecai. Oh, wait, hold on. We got And that was on purpose. That wasn't me forgetting a slide. Okay. Um, so now we are introduced to a new character, Haman the Agagite. Now, when we read this name, Haman sounds like the Hebrew word for wrath. And Agagite, um, depending on how, which scholar you read, it either means he's an anti-Semite, he hates Jews, or it means he's from a specific line of, from Canaan that, that all hated the Jews and the Jews all hated. Either way, what you should come away with when you read Haman the Agagite is, this guy hates Jewish people. And he is promoted to second in command in Persia. Mordecai saves the king's life and all of a sudden this new character comes in and gets promoted over Mordecai and he hates Jews. That's not good. He really hates Jews. And finally, he's a schemer. We're going to see over and over again in this story how he tries to work things for his own ends with a king who is easily manipulated. And so Haman is promoted and at this point, Mordecai decides he will not bow to Haman. You see, when Haman is promoted... Mordecai at this point in time and all the other people in Susa are told by a decree from the king, you must bow down to Haman. And Mordecai will not bow down. And some people read this and they say, well, Mordecai is just being, this guy hates the Jews. He's an Agagite. Mordecai, Mordecai is being holy in this moment. He is choosing to say, I will not worship this guy. The problem with this is all of history. Um, you see, because the Jewish people were willing to bow to Persian officials everywhere else. But Mordecai is unwilling. And when Mordecai is unwilling, how we should probably read this, and I think it's very clear as you read it closely, what happens is that Mordecai is very prideful. This guy took my job. And I don't like his people, he doesn't like mine. I'm not going to bow to him. 
So what happens out of this, the palace officials notice that Mordecai won't bow and they ask him, why are you disobeying the king's command? And they keep asking him. And as they ask him, they tell Haman too, hey Haman, Mordecai's not bowing. And if you remember the very first thing that happens in this book, um, in the feast, Vashti refuses. What do the wise men think? They think, well, if Vashti refuses, every other woman will refuse. So now they see that Mordecai will not bow and they say, well, can Haman stop him from not bowing? Because if Haman can't stop Mordecai, he has no power. You see, that's what the Persians care about, is who has power over others. So when they see Mordecai not bowing, they want to see, is, is Haman going to put an end to this? Or does Mordecai have power over Haman? And the only thing Mordecai says in the midst of this, when they say, why won't you bow? Eventually he does say, well, I'm a Jew. And the Jews had kind of their own laws, but, but that wouldn't have meant he didn't have to bow. But so here's what happens out of this. Haman has a plot to kill Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. He decides, I don't just want to kill Mordecai. I want to kill any person of the same race as Mordecai. I just want to wipe all of them out at the same time. So, so Haman comes up with this plot, and, and to start this plot here, this is a weird thing at first, but it's going to make sense. It's going to pay off. So Haman says, all right, I got to pick a date to kill all the Jews. And so in his presence, they start doing this thing. It's called casting lots. But in, 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 in Hebrew, the word is purim. It's, it's a specific word. It's going to matter. Um, but so he says, all right, sh- it's the first month. Should we kill him in the first month? They roll the dice. Nope. Second month. Eventually, it goes all the way to the 12th month. So it's the furthest away it could possibly be. It lands on, yes, that's when you'll kill him. And so a day is decided on the 12th month. After that, he goes to the king, and I'm going to paraphrase this. Essentially, he says, hey, king, there is a people group that don't really follow your laws that are in your kingdom. It's not good for them to do that. We need to kill all of them, okay? So, so we should do that, and I will even pay for it. And the king responds. He agrees. He confirms his decision. He never asks, what people group? Who is it? He doesn't ask anything like that. He just goes, okay, and he gives his signet ring to Haman, which means that Haman has the full authority of the king, And he says, the money and the people are both yours. Keep your money, Haman, and just do whatever you want to do. So the king, easily manipulated, tells Haman, do whatever you want to do. And it's at this point that we have to consider one more thing. This is the Persian Empire during the time of Esther. And when Mordecai won't bow, and Haman comes up with this plot, that 11 months from now, all the Jews are going to be killed from from the oldest to the youngest. Inside of the Persian Empire is this place called Jerusalem where the Jews are supposed to be. In fact, the Persian Empire, probably every single Jew in, history, or in, the, in that time period would have probably been living in the Persian Empire. And inside that Persian Empire, because Mordecai won't bow, Jerusalem, where they're busy rebuilding the temple and starting to reestablish their faith and their, their devotion to God, is going to be under attack. Because one dude won't bow because he's prideful. That's not good. So we go on, Mordecai at this point appeals to or threatens Esther. And the or threatens is really important. Does anyone know what the most famous line in the book of Esther is? You can just yell it out. No one? For such a time as this is not it, but it's what everyone thinks it is. Um, And that's what we're, that's the point of this. And my wife didn't even get it. And she she heard me say all this yesterday. So, um, 
So Mordecai appeals to Esther. When, when this decree goes out, remember, a decree of the king cannot be revoked. And this decree goes out to all the kingdom. And when it goes out, all the Jews start to hear about it. And they start to tear their clothing and put on sackcloth and ash. It's an ancient way that they would mourn. And Mordecai goes to the king's gate, which is where he always went. But he goes there. And when Esther hears that Mordecai is there, what does she do? Does she go into mourning? No. She sends him clothing. And I think that if you read kind of closely, I think what's happening there is she's trying to say, hey, I really don't want to be associated with a Jew right now. Can you put on clothing so people may not realize what's going on here? But Mordecai sends her the whole list of what's about to happen and says, you have to talk to the king. You have to talk to the king. And Esther responds, and she tells, the the king has this policy. There are seven men who are allowed to be in the presence of the king. The queen is not. But if she enters the king's presence, unless he summons her, if he does not hold out a golden scepter to her, she will be killed on the, pot, on the spot, impaled on a spike. So Esther says, I, I haven't even been in his presence in 30 days, and you're asking me to do this? No, I can't. And it's at this point that we see such a time as this. Mordecai, Mordecai sent a reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives, Mordecai is one of them, will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? It's a threat. We read it as like, oh, I'm ready for a time like this, but it's not. It's a threat. Mordecai is saying to her, if you won't do something, God will deliver because God's promises will come to bear, even though he never says God. Um, but, but he says, if you don't do anything, Esther, if you are silent, you and all yours will die. It's a threat. And it's at this point that Esther responds. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. We're in a series on prayer and fasting. Uh, Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. That's the line. In the ESV, it says, if I perish, I perish. That's the line. I want to raise up Lucy to be a girl who says when the time comes, if I perish, I perish. That's the coolest line of this story because she is determined. And her just walking into the king's court in that moment could just lead it. The king could just look at her and say, not today. Dead. That's it. That's how fickle the court is. But so they pray and they fast for three days. And we're not told who they pray or fast to, but we can fill that in a little bit. And after that, Esther enters the king's court. And when he sees her, he thinks, wow, she's got a lovely figure. She's hot. And he holds up the golden scepter and says, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. And wow, it seems like, all right, this will be easy. But she responds, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. Okay, so Esther gives a feast for Xerxes and Haman. And then out of that, at the feast, while they're, while they're drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me, what do you really want? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. So a second time she's asked. And now it's like, all right, Esther, it's time. Lay it on him. And Esther says, this is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. So Esther says, can you come back tomorrow? She's buttering him up. She's like, you know, I, I, I want to ease my way into this request. We've got until 12 months from now. I, I don't want to ask too soon and have him say no, and then I get killed. Or whatever. We don't know. 
But so at this point, Haman leaves. And as he leaves, he walks by Mordecai. And when he walks by Mordecai, Mordecai still will not bow to him. And Haman restrains himself because he's like, your day's coming. But he goes home and he gathers together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and he boasted them about all his wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. The king, at the start of this story, has a feast to show off all that he has. Haman now does the same thing after the feast with Esther that same night. And then he added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Imagine being his ten kids. <laughs> you are all worth nothing as long as Mordecai's like his wife. He's like, oh, thanks, honey. Um, the, the point, though, is it, he is just like, I just really wish I could kill Mordecai right now. And his wife and his friends, they cheer him up. They say, why don't you just set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall and in the morning ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. <laughs> I just read this as like, that's how you cheer him up. I, I just, I think it's so, like... If you want him killed, just, you're, in, you're second in command. Just do it tomorrow. You don't need to wait 11 months. Just make it happen. And so now, we've been traveling our way up. The Jews face genocide. Esther has had a feast with the king, but out of it, she's just asked for another one. Mordecai is going to be killed first thing in the morning unless something changes. And here we go. Remember, it's a chiasm. This is the key moment of the whole story. Sleep fled from King Xerxes. That's it. He has indigestion, essentially. He's got heartburn or something. I actually wanted to title this sermon for such a tums as this, um, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, but the point is, is King Xerxes that night can't fall asleep. And when he can't fall asleep, what does he do? He calls his royal officials, those seven men, he says, hey guys, can you guys just read from the book of the Chronicles of Xerxes? So the, the book where they record all the things he's done. And as morning approaches, it's early morning now, they read this story about Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king says, what did we do for him? What did we do for him? And, and the king asked and his re attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And while this is going on, Haman wakes up early and he's got like a, a bounce in his step. He's merry and he says, all right, I'm going to go approach the king and say, let's get Mordecai killed this morning so we can feast this afternoon. And as Haman is on his way, the king looks out the window and says, who is that? And they say Haman. And the king says, yeah, 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 bring him here. Bring him here. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought to himself, well, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, which no one else was legally allowed to wear, and he should bring out a horse that the king himself had ridden that only the king was legally allowed to ride, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have that official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And the king says, excellent. 
quick, take the robes. Haman, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman had to do this, right? It's the king told him to do it. And, and so he had to run around. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And I'm sure he was grinding his teeth that whole time. And Mordecai's just, hey, hey. Um, so then the next thing that happens after sleep fled from King Xerxes in this moment, Haman after that goes home because he's got to start scheming again. And when he tells his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It would be fatal to continue opposing him. So when they say, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth, what did, Mordecai, or what did Haman call him the other day? Mordecai the Jew. It is a complete flip. These, this family saying, get that spike up as quick as you can. Just get him killed in the morning. They're now like, you will not oppose him. Then as Haman is trying to start a plot, the king's men come and say, all right, Haman, it's time. And Esther begins to host a second feast for Xerxes and Haman. And so Haman, before he can do anything else, finds himself in the presence of Esther and Xerxes again. And at this second feast, while they were drinking wine again, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who will kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. The king responds, who would do such a thing? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? And Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. And Xerxes at this moment in a rage just leaves the feast and goes out into the palace garden, probably to cool down, but he's just out there probably yelling. I, we, we get this picture of he just leaves in a rage. And it's at this point, earlier in the story, Mordecai pleads with, with Esther. He begs her, he appeals to her. And now Haman appeals to or begs Esther. In despair, Haman fell on the couch where King, Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. He's going to beg her, hey Esther, I'm really sorry, please do not kill me. But as, before Esther can even say anything, the king returns. And he says, will he even assault, and that word assault is rape. Will he even rape the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, Haman's face signaling his doom. And so Haman is killed in Mordecai's place. And how that comes about, one of the king's eunuchs who is there says, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And so now the device that would kill Haman, or Mordecai kills Haman. And then Esther has a plea to the king to stop Haman's plan. That's the very next thing that happens. And, and she pleads, she went before him again, and she says, falling down at his feet, and she begs him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. Against the king, or again, the king held out the golden scepter to Esther. So she rose and stood before him. But there's a problem. A, a decree issued by this king cannot be revoked. 
So on that day, the Jews are going to be slaughtered unless something else is done. So what happens here? Esther and Mordecai do save the Jews. And how they do it, the king says to her, I've, you know, I've given you everything that belonged to Haman and he has been impaled. Now go ahead to Mordecai and Esther. Go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name telling them whatever you want. He is a terrible king. Tell them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. The ring that had been given to Haman is now given to Mordecai. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So you can tell the Jews whatever you want. Just remember, it can't overwrite something I've already done. Mordecai is promoted in this and he becomes second in charge in the kingdom and he devises a plan to put an end to what Haman did. You see, the the plan that Haman brought about was that, that... all the Jewish people on that day, anyone who wanted could kill them. And the Jews were not allowed to defend themselves. And you may say, well, of course they'd try, but the problem is, is as soon as they tried to defend themselves, they were breaking the law. And so the army would be involved. So any Jews who tried to keep themselves alive on this certain day would receive certain death for it by either the people trying to kill them or the army after. But Mordecai came up with a plan and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it legal for the Jews to defend themselves. As ridiculous as that sounds, that is exactly what happened. And so the king's decree goes to all the kingdom. And the Jews are allowed not only to kill those who attack them, but also kill those who have been plotting against them. By the time this decree goes out, the other decree had probably been out in all the provinces of the kingdom for months. So imagine being a Jew and your neighbor is like looking at you like, in a couple months that's going to be mine. Like, I I think about, um, I am really bad at mowing our lawn, Um, and not just at mowing in straight lines, but also remembering to mow. Um, I love it when it rains, because it's like an excuse, I don't have to mow, but my neighbors, I am confident, look sometimes like, "Hmm, I wish I could cut that lawn. For the Jewish people, this moment is their neighbors looking at them saying, I wish I could cut them today. And I I say that because it's this over-the-top moment where the Jews for 11 months are living with people that are thinking of ways to kill them and take all their stuff. But then the second decree goes out to all the kingdom, and the whole story reverses. And we come to the day in Esther 9. So on the day the two decrees of the king were put into effect, on that day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. The the literal idiom is like, the tables have turned. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And this is such a reversal of fortune, because if you remember, there's a point in this story where every single Jew is destined for death. And now they overpower, and what we read if we go deep into it is they fight against all who had planned against them, and they wind up wiping out a whole lot of people that were determined to kill the Jews. And in the city capital, the king says to Esther, hey, the day's gone according to your plan. What do you want from me? And Esther says, can we do it one more day here? Because there are so many people in the capital determined to put an end to the Jews. And what comes out of this is that Mordecai is promoted. He becomes second in command. And and under Mordecai, For the people, the Jewish people, remember, it's a story for a Jewish audience, they live well in the kingdom of Persia, both in Jerusalem and in all the kingdoms, under the wisdom of Mordecai. And and out of this, a feast 
is born. The Jews still hold this feast. It's called the Feast of Purim. And, and the feast began because Haman the Agagite had plotted to crush and destroy the Jews on the date determined by casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire. And Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharpened pole. That is why this celebration is called Purim, because it is the ancient word for casting lots. On this day, once a year, the Jewish people celebrate that they were not annihilated because of the casting of lots, because of something that is seemingly chance. The Lord worked through it to bring about a great victory for them. And so when we look at this story, we see moment after moment where when you think carefully, you can see how God works. When Esther becomes queen, it's an awkward moment, but the Lord is in it because she's the one chosen. So when the time comes, she's ready to do what needs to be done. When Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate and he hears of the assassination, it's clear that that God's providence, God's divine sovereignty, he allows that to happen so Mordecai can save the king. When Haman casts the dice, it's, it's clear in the story that it is God's hand that just gets those dice to land on that 12th month away. When, when Esther goes before the king and he goes, wow, she's hot, he finds fa- or she finds favor in his eyes because of a sovereign God. And, and finally, when the king cannot sleep, when the king cannot sleep, that is the moment that works out the entire story. Without that moment, that second feast probably would have fallen on a bit more deaf ears. Haman would have been able to defend himself. But because of that moment, the whole story shifts because God keeps the king from falling asleep. And it is such an amazing moment. And out of that, you see moment after moment where the Jews are put in a better and better situation. And what's crazy when you think about this is if Mordecai, when he first saved the king's life, if he would have been promoted, there would have been Haman and his 10 sons and all of these other people who wanted to kill the Jews ready to plot against them. But because of how this worked out in a seemingly impossible way, in the most unlikely of way, they're saved. They're saved in that moment. As we read Esther, I want to point out a few things to all of us before we close out. The first thing, um, no matter how far we fall away, God will use those who call to him. Um, That is a key principle of this story because we are supposed to read Mordecai and we are supposed to read Esther and we're supposed to read these characters not as divinely righteous people living super well but as people that have made some bad decisions and recognize the position they're in and they start crying out to God and God responds the next thing is no matter the obstacle God will keep his promises the whole old testament is laced with promises to the Jewish people that they will not be wiped out and in the middle of a story of one man's pride and another man's pride going head to head the Jews are almost annihilated and yet God will not let his promises fall away. And finally, no matter the king, God is sovereign. Whether Xerxes was a wise and cunning king or or the comical drunken fool that we see, there is a promise in the story that God reigns over all of that. And that is something that we can all take hope in today. And so at at this time, I'm going to invite Bethany out, and we're going to have just a few, we're going to have a few minutes before offering ushers. Um, But um, I want to encourage you, this whole story is a story of God revealing and and, uh, breakthroughs, of God just bringing about the promises and, and saving his people. And so we've been in this month of prayer and fasting, and you've got in your 
um, in your bulletins, you've got those blue post-it notes. And we're going to take just a few minutes. And if you've had a breakthrough this month, or if you have a prayer request, we also have yellow post-it notes back there. I want to encourage you to take a little bit of time and, see, and just go post it on the wall. Um, and then I'll come out and I'll close us in prayer. And as I do that, I want to tell you, if the book of Esther, if we put that over on that wall, the first half would all be yellow and the second half would all be blue because God works so amazingly. And so wherever you're at, you may say, my prayer request is never going to be answered, but I want to encourage you, God works in the most amazing things. No matter who we are, it's when we call out to him and look to him for our salvation.
Lord, God, we thank you that you are so good. Uh, We thank you that you can turn the worst circumstances for your glory. We thank you that you will not fail your promises. Um, And we thank you that that no matter how far we stray, no matter um, just just where we're at, um, whether we're, we feel close to you or far away, um, you can and do work through us when we call out to you. We thank you that those promises you demonstrate over and over in your Bible, um, from, from the beginning, a, a promise that you would someday defeat sin to, to the cross, to the resurrection, to, to the new earth and new heaven coming. We, we thank you that your promises are sure that, that you will bring them about, and we, we thank you that for us, we can rest in those promises. We thank you that you are in control, that no matter how the nations rage, no matter who is president, who is in charge, no matter um, whatever happens, Lord, we know that ultimately you are in control, and we can place our trust in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.